1: This is The View From Somewhere, a podcast about journalism with a purpose. I'm Ramona Martinez, the producer. Today's episode is about the history of queer media and coverage of AIDS, and we're so excited to share it with you.
0: But real quick before we do, this is Lewis with an update on our fundraising campaign. We are getting so close to our big goal, and we have until Thursday morning, February 6th, to get all the way there. Uh, We are depending on you to go to the website, viewfromsomewhere.com click on the big orange button um, or find me on Twitter at LewisPants and give what you can. And while you're there, you can see our really cool puppet show.
1: Also, if you're listening for the first time, the podcast is serialized, which means if you like this one, we'd recommend listening back from the start. Thanks and enjoy the show.
0: Gay people love potlucks it's a thing. And honestly, I kind of hate them because I have food anxiety and some social anxiety, and I feel like you just can't trust everyone to provide enough protein and like not be an asshole. <laughs> but I'm gay, and I have been for a long time, so I've gotten used to it. Anyhow, hi, this is the View From Somewhere podcast. I'm Lewis Raven-Wallace, and I'm here to tell you about a different kind of potluck, One I'm more excited about.
2: And now it's time for this week's Potluck, imagined and produced by Little John
3: and Andy. We're here today to talk about gay liberation.
0: Y'all, how cute is this? A gay radio show called a Potluck because it's a variety show? It debuted on Boston's rock station, WBCN, in 1973. It was one of the first queer radio shows ever. It was created by journalist Andy Kopkind and his boyfriend, John Scagliotti, this guy.
2: So we just turned it into the gay hour from 10 to 11 on Sunday night. And it turned out to be much heavier than I thought it was. We were just going to have a good time and put fun stuff on. Uh, it's called The Lavender Hour.
4: Little girls in
2: their dresses Pretty curls, flaxen tresses And I think I'm going to throw up on the floor Little boys keep fighting angry Running madly, do it gladly And I don't think I can take it anymore Where have So we would string that in with... Something like David fly. Bowie <laughs> or whatever, and, you know, some rock and roll song that we thought was gayish, along with spoken word from All Auden or something like that, right? But it turned out to be very important stuff. It allowed a lot of young people to go put earphones on and listen to the radio at 10 o'clock at night and hear themselves. So that was important. None of that music we've just heard was explicitly homosexual. Commercial music has been closeted in the same way the audiences have been until this year when rock superstars have suddenly begun to come out. It's fantastically exciting for gay people to have their own music to listen to and identify with. It's too bad little Richard couldn't I love that image
0: of gay kids in the 1970s listening to The Lavender Hour through their headphones and dreaming their way out of their parents' terrible houses.
2: Potluck with The Lavender Hour will be back right after these messages.
0: This week on The View From Somewhere, we're peering into queer journalism history, looking at how queer journalists were excluded from the industry and how they, we, have always responded by making our own things. And those things, radio shows, newspapers, documentaries, have turned out to be really important in times of crisis, specifically the AIDS crisis. We'll talk to queer journalism luminaries Sarah Schulman and Stephen Thrasher. Stay with us, and be aware that there is some fun, explicit sex stuff straight ahead in just a minute. As I continued on my own journey away from the myth of objectivity, I found myself wondering more and more. What if objectivity isn't just a wrong idea, but a harmful lie? What if it's like opposite day? What about the times when the opposite of detachment, connection, and intimacy actually get journalists closer to the truth? A few episodes back, we met Carrie Grusin, an amazing woman who had the accident covering Vietnam vets, and she told me I should look up a friend of hers, John Scagliotti, AKA Little John. John and his partner, Andrew Kopkind, were both longtime media makers. Andy died in 1994. I met John on the Vermont farm they bought together, and they turned it into a writing retreat. Their romance started in Boston in a very gay 1970s way. So we all lived
2: in this sort of great place right around the Fens, the Fenway.
0: The Fens was actually a gay cruising spot. You could go down there and suck Dick after the business guys got off work. Little John got into it, started going to the fens on the regular. One
2: at one point, this gorgeous man came in, and I followed him into the fens. and he uh, we started having a little sexual encounter. And then all of a sudden, I happened to be down a little bit on my knees, kind of, <laughs> adoring him, uh, when all of a sudden he grabs me with my armpits or arms and lifts me up and says, cops. And the cops used to come in. And so, because he, he was tall, he could see the cops coming in. Other people couldn't. And so we ran out and got to the road and looked back. And out of this kind of small area, maybe 75 to 100 men, I had no idea there were that many people in the fence at this time, all come running out. And it was a very funny scene to see all these guys <laughs> sort of escaping the fence. And Andy turned to me and laughed, and, and I thought, oh, that, it is funny. And he said, would you like a cup of coffee? And I said, sure. It was the first time anyone had ever spoken to me in the six weeks that I had been going to the fence.
0: And uh, we stayed together from that day on. Andy Copkind was older than Little John, and it turned out he was a reporter for the New Republic. But he wasn't really out, because you couldn't be. A few years back, when Andy was working for Time Magazine in LA in the 60s, he got caught by the cops in one of these same public sex sweeps. But get this, instead of firing him, Time magazine required him to go to conversion therapy to try to make him not gay. The magazine paid for it.
2: The funny story was that with the therapist, they would do role playing, and the therapist would play like he was a, a stewardess. They called him stewardesses in those days. And Andy's job was to try to pick up the stewardess on the plane.
0: And the, the male therapist would play the stewardess role. Oh, my God.
2: <laughs> and It was very funny. Andy couldn't believe it. Uh, so he would have to drop lines, you know. Oh, you your skirt looks <laughs> very nice. Not- I don't know how you pick up a woman. Uh, and Andy, I don't think, knew either. <laughs> but... Uh, Anyways, so that was After
0: meeting those... Andy, John became a journalist and a filmmaker, too. And they started creating programming by and for queer people, which was a big deal. Even though this was after Stonewall, when The Lavender Hour came out, queerness was still dangerous to even talk about.
2: Everyone agreed that homosexuals were disgusting and horrible. Um, the debate might have been, well, maybe they shouldn't. They certainly should be put in mental institutions and in hospitals and in uh, jail. And they all are child molesters. That was pretty much it
0: at the time when we started out. Throughout the 50s and 60s, gay people, homosexuals, they were called, were depicted as sick, psychotic, dangerous, or at best, just sad. They were also generally cis men. Lesbians and trans folks weren't shown at all. The activist movements of the 60s and 70s created a little more push and pull, occasional coverage of protests and things like that. But this marginalization of gay people from mainstream media was a problem for gay people, and it was a problem for everyone, when people started dying and no one knew why. remember when i said suck dick on this podcast god that's like living the dream i mean the news doesn't have to be geared toward the tastes and sensibilities of the most prudish people right ramona
1: yeah that is one of the problems of objectivity objectivity reflects status quo thinking about sex and sexuality and race and everything, really.
0: And on The View From Somewhere, we are committed to pushing back, to having fun and learning history and lifting up these non-status quo stories about journalists you might not have heard of, but should have.
1: It's an antidote to hopelessness and this often hopeless time.
0: And we have some amazing stuff planned for the rest of the season. We're covering public media history, the rise of the right wing, and most importantly, solutions.
1: Solutions, people!
0: What people are doing today to change journalism and make it more people-driven and hopeful.
1: But we can't do that without your help. Our second and final Kickstarter campaign is underway, and we have a pretty modest goal to get to the end of this season and pay for our basic costs living wages for the production team, studio, software, archival footage.
0: There's no other podcast like this one. And we're doing this all independently with just your support. So if you value this stuff, if you want to hear more of it, you can do something really simple and really meaningful by giving in any amount. Now, most people give $10 or $25. Just go to viewfromsomewhere.com for that link.
1: Thank you. Viewfromsomewhere.com.
0: Do it.
1: Hey Lewis, do you remember when I called SCOTUS a bunch of motherfuckers on this podcast? <laughs> that was cool. Um, I mean, but
0: it was cool.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> the view from our foul mouths. Yeah. That's a little graphic, actually. The view from my by the early 1980s coverage of queer people had started to improve but there was still a lot missing the new york times
3: wouldn't use the word gay there was if you died
0: that you couldn't be survived by anybody this is sarah shulman she started out in journalism in 1979 and has been an influential queer writer ever since there was really no coverage i mean the only way that queer people ever could read anything about themselves was by reading this kind of underground movement press. Sarah wrote for queer, feminist, and socialist rags like the Gay Community News out of Boston and eventually the New York Native, a bi-weekly gay paper. She became their city hall reporter in the early 80s. The story at the time
3: was that there was no gay rights bill in New York City and it took 13 years before that bill was passed. And then in 1981 is when AIDS began.
2: Scientists at the National Centers for Disease Control in Atlanta today released the results of a study which shows that the lifestyle of some male homosexuals has triggered an epidemic of a rare form of cancer.
0: When AIDS began, it wasn't even called that. No one knew what it was or how it spread people started dying and no one understood why. And the media and politicians were really slow to care because it was a disease that primarily affected gay men, at least at first. The mayor of New York, Ed Koch, was supposedly a closeted gay man himself and lots of gay people were horrified to see him drag his feet on this. Sarah did all kinds of shoe leather coverage those first few years. I covered the closing of the bathhouses in New York City, and
3: that's a very interesting story, because first of all, the fact that I was assigned to cover the closing of the bathhouses is interesting in and of itself, because I was never in a bathhouse. Women were not allowed in bathhouses.
0: For the uninitiated, bathhouses were where gay men came to hook up, a legal alternative to the public sex Andy Copkind got busted for. And there was this idea that HIV-AIDS was spreading because of bathhouses, which there was no good evidence for. Still, Mayor Koch joined the call for these establishments to be shut down.
4: This is uh, a matter that involves a lot of money to these people. They are selling death. Places where death can be distributed. We don't want that to go on. But nevertheless, they don't give a damn about it apparently because it's going on
2: and they're making money. Mayor Koch is an utter hypocrite, if that's what he said. This place has had its role in educating people.
3: But the real issue around that was if we close spaces where people go for sex, how do we get information to people about sex? But, you know, I was assigned this because Everything was so chaotic that journalists themselves were sick and dying. My editor at the Village Voice, Robert Massa, died. Uh, And also nobody knew what the stories were.
0: Sarah Schulman was so close to this story because these were her friends, her community, dying.
3: It was an overwhelming experience. It was very hard to understand what was going on people were dying very 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 fast like you would see someone and then the next thing you knew they'd be dead or you just never see someone and then you didn't know if they were dead and I think one of the things people don't really understand about AIDS is that it was an absolutely horrible disease you had a total breakdown of your immune system so you know people couldn't eat their legs were swollen they had skin cancers their mouths were filled with thrush which is this white stuff um, They had dementia, they had blindness. And so, to be young, you know, when I started being an AIDS reporter, I was 24, and be surrounded by your generation literally falling apart and suffering and nobody cares, it's very overwhelming. So there was all of that and nobody could see the way out.
0: It was a nightmare. And at first, AIDS was referred to as a gay cancer. Now, now we know that there's no such thing as gay cancer.
3: Cancer is not gay. There's no link between being gay and having cancer. But at the time, the two concepts were merged because at that time, people believed that homosexuality was biological, that it was, in fact, that homosexuality was the disease, and that, therefore, AIDS was a natural expression of the disease of
0: homosexuality. By the end of 1982, nearly 800 people had confirmed cases of AIDS, and the number was rising exponentially. The death rate appeared to be above 50%. But the national media was still mostly ignoring it. At that point, the New York Times, Sarah Shulman's hometown paper, had done five stories, none of them on the front page. By comparison, in 1982, the Times did four front-page articles and 50 articles total on the Chicago Tylenol murders, which killed seven people. It was a huge failure to cover a huge story right in the Times' own backyard. But the Times wasn't accountable to the LGBT community.
4: The New York Times is relatively conservative, you know, if you were to look around, it's going to have business, it's going to have apartment listings, you know, it's also going to have sort of uh, small-c conservative framings of political stories.
0: This is Stephen Thrasher, the Daniel H. Renberg Chair of Media Coverage of Sexual and Gender Minorities at Northwestern. He researches AIDS history. He says the alternative weeklies were a really important journalistic counterpoint to outlets like The Times, covering the sphere of deviance, as it were.
4: And these gay community news things, you know, they, you might find in those same pages articles about fisting and sex parties and uh, communism and, uh, you know, what happened. Very, very leftist kind of, kind of newspapers and with lots of leftist things going on and a very community focus, you know, not, not striving towards a, a dual both sides sense of objectivity or faux objectivity.
0: And they weren't beholden to homophobic advertisers. The New York native was the first paper to report on the so-called gay cancer. Also, since the first cases were reported in Los Angeles and New York, Thrasher thinks mainstream outlets based there were more likely to pay attention.
4: So I think a lot about how the New York Times, um, which has had a problematic history covering gay people and HIV and AIDS, but they're still in New York City and social relationships are important. And you have a lot of reporters who are around a lot of gay people, some of whom are able to lobby them and say that you should be able to cover this. And some of them who just out of their own reporting sensibility and out of their own sense of empathy want to know what's happening in their town.
0: Physical proximity to the crisis helped get the coverage to happen. But shame and fear and just straight-up homophobia played a huge role too. It was hard to be out in mainstream media, which meant gay people were often afraid to even push for better coverage from the inside. And without big outlets making a fuss, it was a struggle to get the attention of the people in power. President Ronald Reagan didn't say the word AIDS publicly until September 1985.
2: Our battle against AIDS has been like an emergency room operation. We've thrown everything we have into it. We've declared AIDS public health enemy number one. I'm determined that we'll find a cure for AIDS.
0: That same day, he advocated for abstinence education and teaching moral values to kids. In the first five years of the crisis, while Reagan and so many others were silent, 40,000 people died. And the people closest to it, the journalists closest to it, like Sarah Schulman, seemed to be the only ones speaking out. They were excluded from places like the Times, and so they had to push from the outside. And so
3: one of the objectives of the AIDS activist movement was to force mainstream media to cover AIDS.
0: In 1987, queer activists founded AIDS Coalition to Unleash Power for ACT UP. Sarah Shulman joined ACT UP because she saw that just reporting the stories for alternative outlets still wasn't enough. ACT UP used all kinds of tactics to get more coverage. They would film protests with camcorders and literally bring the footage down to television stations to get them to play it.
4: The government has the resources to deal with the AIDS epidemic, and they won't do it unless we force them. So we're trying to force them to deal with the AIDS epidemic. Tell me who you are and where you're from. I'm, I'm David, David Stern. I'm a person with AIDS from San Francisco.
0: I watched a 2012 documentary Shulman co produced, United in Anger, about ACT UP. It's all on YouTube. It shows a famous demonstration where activists did a die-in inside of St. Patrick's Cathedral in New York. Shulman was there, and she was interviewed by a reporter just after.
3: I'm Sarah Shulman. I was sitting in a pew, and I watched the die-in, which I think was pretty effective. But um, when people from ACT UP started standing on pews and screaming, it really alienated the people who were praying. I saw people get very angry and upset. Um, I think they felt really violated by that, although the die-in, I think, was much more effective because it was silent.
0: Act Up got a lot of attention through these dramatic demonstrations. But then there were also direct action
3: towards the, the mainstream venues. Like, I remember we faxed a mile of black paper to the New York Times when they got their first fax machine. Or were, Act Up made a facsimile of the New York Times called New York Crimes and put it in their newspaper boxes. And because the, the reporting was just terrible,
0: this is sort of a, a setup question, but or a leading question, but uh, what was so terrible about the reporting of the New York Times at the time?
3: Well, the first thing was they weren't reporting on it. You know, uh, so when the mainstream media finally did start to cover AIDS, they started to create these false dichotomies between innocent victims and guilty victims. And this was purely a creation of the media. So if you were straight and you got AIDS through a blood transfusion you were an innocent victim. If you got AIDS through sex
0: or needle use, you were a guilty victim. And they did a lot of damage that way. But even though that coverage could be problematic, getting mainstream outlets to cover AIDS was a goal. Because she says reporting for papers like the New York Native could only go so far. When you're writing for a movement newspaper in the 80s or
3: 90s, you are influencing activists, you're influencing people in the community, but the people with power are not being influenced. So if you can inform people, and then you can participate with those people in creating direct actions that will force the powers that be to confront certain realities, then you're carrying it through.
0: Stephen Thrasher thinks coverage of AIDS was a dance between these queer papers and mainstream outlets, and it mattered to have both.
4: You know, the gay community news might write something and the CDC might not respond to them. Then the Times might write something and the CDC will respond to them. Now the framing of it might be off, it might be limiting, might be racist, might be homophobic, might be incomplete, but there are always things that the community group can kind of glean from what happened to that exchange again. And that and that gives them the the ability to to have a bit more information, to ask new questions. And so I think you see that tension and that push to pull a lot um, between the traditional media and community media of all kinds.
0: Being close to the story helped queer journalists see just how urgent the AIDS crisis was. But because gay people were so marginalized, they also had to push to be journalists and activists before bigger outlets would cover these stories at all. They couldn't afford detachment. Because being detached in this case too often meant staying silent.
2: We'll never be silent again.
0: These journalists succeeded in a lot of ways, ACT UP and all the many LGBTQ media activists before and after got coverage and attention, changed the narrative. But this question of proximity, how close we are to the story, and whether and how that matters is complicated, because closeness can be good, can make the work more powerful, but it can also distort our perspective. In 2016, I was working for Marketplace when the Pulse Massacre happened. 50 people, almost all queer and Latinx, were shot and killed while out dancing at a gay club in Orlando. I remember the morning it happened, waking up to an avalanche of grief and confusion on social media, going to vigils, dance parties, honoring the victims, calling in sick from work to grieve. And then a couple weeks later, I flew south myself to do feature stories for Marketplace. The day I arrived in Florida, I went to this midnight drag show where almost everyone there knew the victims. One of the queens was a survivor of the massacre. My stories, which were about job discrimination against queer people in Florida, and about the economic situation for Puerto Rican and Latinx survivors of the massacre, felt visceral and raw but proximity here isn't straightforward I'm queer white and trans I was coming from New York City I felt both close to the story and like an outsider whether it was my community wasn't a cut and dry question and it rarely is Stephen Thrasher who's queer and black is teaching his journalism students now that being aware of your closeness to the story, of how you relate to it, can make your reporting deeper and build trust with audiences.
4: Being a good journalist, I think, means creating uh, a relationship with readers over time or viewers or listeners where they know that you're going to, um, you're going to ask tough questions of your subjects and of yourself. And even if they think that you have a bias or they think that you are inclined to look at certain things and ask certain questions, if they think that you are being critical and tough on everything in, in the story, including on yourself and your own positioning, they'll go on the ride with you. They will trust you even if they think that you are, uh, you know, apt to be looking in one place or the other. And so that's the way I think that that having written about black and queer issues has helped me um, build up uh, a credibility with myself and with my audiences over
0: the years. And he says having some direct experience of misrepresentation is also helpful when covering communities we aren't part of.
4: I think that gives me a way to be more self-critical when i'm when I'm talking to other people. And I think that subjects of stories and readers just benefit any time that the writer of those stories is being self-critical, self-analytical, and interrogating things. Not just leaving things as assumptions, but, but being willing to wrestle with them and think about how their own positioning affects the story.
0: After I got back from Orlando, I wrote something on my blog about how there is no good way to cover a crisis, especially an ongoing crisis. We all bring biases, positive and negative, to every decision about what matters, about whose grief and whose loss takes center stage, what details to include or leave out. I was aware that my feeling of closeness to the Pulse Massacre made these deaths particularly vivid for me and motivated me to do these stories. Which is a good thing, but also complicated. It's an ambiguous thing when we base what we care about on how close we are to it. Because there were mass killings all over the world in June 2016. It was a terrible summer. I wrote in my blog. It makes me think about Turkey, Bangladesh, Iraq, Afghanistan, Syria, Cameroon, Libya, Somalia, Nigeria, Yemen, all places hit by mass killings in public places in the same month of June 2016. It makes me think about how those faces won't flash through my Facebook feed. My friends and I in the United States will never know their names. And I think there is no fair, complete story about a mass killing or a killing of any kind. It's clear in Orlando that the ripple effects are almost endless. But so are the remarkable human responses, the ways of showing up in grief and healing. We're here today to
3: talk about gay liberation.
0: Next time on the View From Somewhere podcast, Public Media was born in the 1970s, and it shared some of this kind of radical vision that these queer journalists had of a pluralistic, truly representative news media. But then, that vision never really came together.
1: I don't think we necessarily have to, pu- like we don't necessarily have to burn public media down because I think it's doing a pretty good job of burning itself down.
0: Almost 50 years later, public media still has a diversity problem. What the hell happened? I'm Lewis Raven-Wallace. Our editorial consultant on this episode was the fabulously intelligent Phyllis Fletcher. And here is our wonderful producer, Ramona Martinez.
1: Original music for this podcast is created by Dogbotic. Additional music by Poddington Bear. Billy D created our logo and Roxana Bendezu does our social media. Thanks to WUNC for recording help. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and wherever you get your podcasts, and leave us a review. Thanks, and talk to you next time.
0: Oh, you thought we were done, but we're not quite done because I'm here to remind you just one last time to go to viewfromsomewhere.com, give us 10, 25, 50 bucks, get cool swag, and support this independently produced podcast to get to the end of our season.
1: Like, my cat probably has a really weird view of the world. It's like, if we were to interview him, I feel like he'd be really problematic. <laughs> he really hasn't seen a lot. Okay.